So we're coming up on World Cities Day later this month, October 31st. Some of you will be celebrating Halloween. I hope more of you are celebrating Reformation Day. Yes, Reformation Day, okay, Reformation Day. But the World Economic Forum actually wants you celebrating World Cities Day. Now, many of you are thinking, Brad, I don't even know what you're talking about. World Cities Day, it seems like there's a day for everything these days. And you know what? You're right. So April 20th, you know what that is? National Lima Bean Respect Day. (laughs) I'm not kidding. You can go look this up. I don't know what disrespecting lima beans looks like. I don't know what happened to the love for black beans or those like sweet bacon beans that you all do down here that we didn't do in California. But according to the World Economic Forum, again, World Cities Day, that's the day we need to be focused upon because cities, well, they're a big deal. 200 years ago, less than 10% of the world's population lived in cities, and yet by 1960, that number had grown to nearly one-third, nearly one-third of the world's population living in cities. By today, around uh, you know, 2021, it's estimated maybe 55% or so of the world lives in cities, and in about the next 15 years, they estimate that number could be as high as 70%. And cities... Many places in the world, cities offer right opportunities for employment, for education, for health care, for access to services in the arts that the country and more rural areas don't just offer, which is why, again, so many, even in the midst of a pandemic, are flocking to cities, because they reflect hope. They reflect opportunity. Cities reflect, for so many, a chance for the future, which is why Right? If you live in China or India, if you live increasingly in Africa or even Latin America, whether or not you live in a major city and can call that city home, right? If you do, that in fact, they say, can determine your destiny. The city you living you live in can determine your destiny. But you know, friend, that idea is actually not so crazy. That actually is an idea we find in the Bible itself. But when the Bible speaks of cities, it's not speaking necessarily of like Jakarta versus Kinshasa or Mumbai versus Shanghai, right? It's not thinking of the relative merits of those cities. When the Bible talks about cities, it, just to borrow the words of a fifth century theologian, Augustine, depicts really a world made up of just two cities. There's the earthly city, the city of man, and there's the heavenly city, the city of God. And every one of us calls one of those two cities home. In which city we choose to live in, which city we settle in, which one we call home, the Bible says that actually determines your destiny, not just here, but that determines your destiny eternally. And friends, that's going to bring us back this morning to our study in the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. If you've got a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to Isaiah 24 to 27. Isaiah 24 to 27, that's where we'll be. Next week, we're going to actually do 28 through 39 to catch us back up with with the preaching card. But this morning, Isaiah 24 to 27, and if you don't have a Bible, we provide Bibles in the seatbacks before you. So we invite you to, to grab that. You're going to want that before you. And if you don't own a Bible, just we'd invite you to take that Bible with you. Let that be our gift to you. We'd love nothing more if you don't own a Bible than to take that Bible, to read it, 
to reflect on it, to meditate it, to really wrestle with what it has to say, to talk with us about it. We'd love that. But again, this morning, you want to keep your Bibles open and you want to keep your fingers ready because we're going to be going back and forth in these chapters. And when we left about two weeks ago, we saw Israel was in a state of peril, Israel as a nation, because she had enemies amassing on her borders. And in those moments, we saw Israel didn't turn to God for help, but rather Israel ran to the nations and looked to the surrounding nations to be her help and her protection and security. And we might be left with the impression, after the the last uh, set of chapters we were in, that the major players on the world stage are the big cities, the big nations of the world. You know, so think maybe Washington, D.C. and Beijing and Moscow, right? Those are the major world players. And if you read the Washington Post, the New York Times, right, you'll get that same, you'll get that same impression. But, but in Isaiah 24 to 27, God's really going to pull back the curtain. And we're going to see that beyond these earthly powers, as significant as they may be, there are actually heavenly powers at play. Now, these chapters are often referred to as Isaiah's apocalypse because in many ways, these four chapters, they really preview for us and they really prepare for us uh, the New Testament book of Revelation. They're giving us a glimpse into that heavenly city and into the cosmic destiny of the earthly city versus that heavenly city. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to consider each city in turn. Think about the earthly city. Think about the heavenly city. Those with that distinguishes them. What awaits the residents of each one of those cities. And then I want to close with that question of which city you call home. So first, let's think about the earthly city. Let's think about the earthly city. So look down with me, chapter 24, chapter 24, and notice as I read through the first verses, really the first 13 verses, notice how Isaiah likens all the earth to a city, and notice what becomes of the city. So again, Isaiah 24, beginning in verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter it as with sentence. And it shall be as with people, so with priest. As with slave, so with master. As with maid, so with mistress. As with buyer, so with seller. As with lender, so with borrower. As with creditor, so with debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord wither has spoken this word. The earth mourns. And withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched. And few men are left. The wine mourns. The vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city. You see right there where he's flipped from all these images of earth to a wasted city. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up. 
so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. We'll stop there. And friends, it's, it's obvious that is not a promising picture Isaiah is depicting this earthly city as a city that is being laid waste in ruins. It is a clear picture of God's judgment. Now, we like naturally to think of ourselves as autonomous beings, right? We like to think that we're finally answerable and accountable and responsible to nobody but ourselves, And yet here, in this vision, we're confronted with the reality that, in fact, we are not autonomous beings, but we are accountable beings. We, all of us, one day, all of creation as well, not just ourselves, but all of creation as we'll see, we will be called to an account by our Creator. And I want you to notice a couple things about this judgment. The first thing I want you to see is that it is, it's universal. It is universal. That's really what's being highlighted, I think, in verses 2 and 3. So notice you've got these contrasts of people and priest, of slave and master, of maid and mistress, buyer, seller, lender, borrow, creditor, debtor. And what Isaiah is helping us see is that God is no respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. So it was a few years ago, I was sitting in the back seat of one of those fancy black SUVs that important people drive in. And I was in the back seat, and the important person was in the front seat, and there was a bit of a, an infraction that happened, and we got pulled over. Now, I just sat in the back. I realized, this is, I have nothing to do with this. And as the officer pulled us over and came to the front, the, the VIP in that vehicle was obviously frustrated, a bit flustered, and just blurted out to the officer, officer, you don't understand I'm the president of, and I won't tell you what it was, all right, because then you'd know who I'm talking about. I don't want to do that. But he was appealing to his position, thinking the officer would show partiality. Of course, he's the president. Friends, it's not like that with God. When he comes in judgment, there is no title, there's no position There's no rank that we can appeal to for special treatment from God. Our social standing, our wealth, even our religious titles and pedigrees, friends, those things will mean nothing on that day. Such judgments, Isaiah is helping us see, they leave the earth in mourning. Notice the earth, it's withering, it's languishing, verse 5. And why is all of that happening? Verse 5, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants for, here's the reason, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. The picture is what we see later of Paul in Romans 8 of, of creation groaning under this weight of sin. You see right here, Isaiah is helping us see what the Bible helps us see all throughout, that sin is the fundamental human problem. Our greatest problems, they're finally not structural, though that's what you will regularly read. They aren't societal, they aren't educational, they aren't familial, though those problems can be real. I'm not doubting that. 
but they all arise out of a deeper problem that is always personal and deeply spiritual. It's the fact that we sin against God. We have broken, as Isaiah says, this everlasting covenant, which I think is referring to the covenant back of creation, the covenant renewed with Noah. That's my guess. It's the fact that God has made us in his image, and as those who are image bearers, we instinctively know some things that are wrong and yet still choose to do them. And we know those things we ought to do and that we choose not to do. And that right there is a picture of our own rebellion against God. Because all of us by nature, we actually hate God. Now we never say that. We never actually think that. But left to ourselves, we hate being exposed we hate being confronted. I mean, how many of you, as we even were going through these songs and thinking about that corporate confession of faith and the, the righteous and the wicked, there's a part of us that just instinctively presses back against that. We don't like being accountable. And given the opportunity, we would rather kill God than actually stand for the consequences of our sin, which is, in fact, exactly what humanity did to Jesus. Exhibit A right there. Such that verse 6, we read, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer. Notice why they suffer for their guilt, the guilt of their own sin. Notice how all suffering, Isaiah is helping us see, all suffering is a consequence of sin. Now that doesn't mean we can trace one-to-one specific sufferings back to specific sins. We need to be very careful. We don't have God's mind. We can't read his hand of history. We can't say that definitively. But all suffering is, in some way, directly the result of sin. And I know the world will tell you that categories like guilt, right, they're dangerous. We're told that guilt if you reflect on it too much, that actually can lead one to depression. That actually can, be, can begin to instill a kind of mental illness, we're even told, in ourselves. But, friend, I would just want to put to you that the next time you do something and there's guilt that wells up in your own soul, before you consciously choose to ignore it or suppress it or shrug it off, Consider if that guilt might just be God's way of getting your attention. Might it be God's way of revealing and exposing to you, in fact, how desperate and how dangerous is your condition before this God? But notice it's not just every human being who's going to be judged. It's actually every heavenly being as well. So look forward, chapter 24, look forward to verse 21. Chapter 24, verse 21, where we read on that day, a future day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. So right there, we're seeing every demonic being, right? And even here we're having echoes of Revelation 20, Right where the demonic realm is, is cast into a pit and is bound together in that pit, chained in a pit. And then even if you jump forward, jump forward with me to chapter 27, verse 1. The universality just in a human judgment and heavenly judgments. And then 27, 1. In that day, the Lord with his 
hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon in the sea. So who's Leviathan? If you know the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes, he calls sort of Leviathan that ever-growing and expanding federal government that just consumes society's resources and talents and ingenuity. And listen, you may be thinking, you know, old, old, old Hobbes had a point, but we're actually not making that political point, and that's not Isaiah's point, just to be clear. If you've ever read Hobbes' Leviathan, that's not what's mentioned here. Rather, in the Bible, Leviathan, Psalm 74, can refer to Egypt, the powers against God's people. It can refer just more often and generally to evil powers. The fact that Leviathan here is reflected as a serpent may be pushing us toward Satan himself. But the point that Isaiah is helping us see is that all of creation, everything is being judged. Nothing escapes God's judgment. Human beings Heavenly beings all fall under it together. It is universal, and it is also, second, I want you to see, it is unbearable. Look back with me to chapter 4, or 24, rather, 24. Flip back to chapter 24, verses 7 to 13. We read just a moment ago. Notice how we read of the vine languishing, of the merry-hearted sighing. So notice there's no more music. In this earthly city, there's no more singing. There's no more wine, verses 8 to 9. I can make a joke about Baptists being there, but I won't. No cause for celebration in this earthly city. right? The, the picture is of the earthly city, it's actually decaying. And it's disintegrating. And, and it says, verse 10, the wasted city is broken down. You know, there is... There's no loss, Isaiah wants us to see. There's no loss, there's no grief as significant as the grief and the loss that is felt on that day as the earthly city is judged. Friends, not the loss of a football game, even a close one. Not the loss of a job, not the loss of an election, not the loss of a friendship, not the loss even of a loved one. No loss in life can compare to the loss we will feel In that earthly city, if we reside there, and in that day, verse 11, when all joy has grown dark and the gladness of the earth is banished. It reminds us of that chilling image Jesus uses of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, that judgment, it's universal. It is unbearable. But third, Isaiah says, yeah, it's also final. Look to 24, verse 17. 24, 17. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit, i.e., okay, the one who escapes the pit, well, now what happens? Shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened. The foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. 
like a boxer that's just taken one of those uppercuts to the chin, staggering, reeling, like a shack before a coming tornado, right? There's just rattling and you know what's about to happen, right? Falling, never to rise again. It's what we read if you jump forward to 25-2, chapter 25, verse 2. We read, for you, and Isaiah is speaking there of God, for you, God, have made the city, the city of man, a heap, the fortified city, a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Or look forward to 26.5. For he, the Lord, has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He, the Lord, that is, lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. Friends, all those are images there of finality. The city that will never rise, the city that is never rebuilt, the city that becomes dust. That's what becomes, Isaiah says, of the earthly city, of the city of man. The cities that we construct with our own hands. The cities of self-reliance, of self-dependence, those cities of self-salvation. Friend, you need to be asking yourself, is this the city you call home? The city of this life, of, of this earth, where the focus is all on the here and now. The kind of city that's bent on pleasure, that's bent on amusement, that's bent on throwing off all restraint of not listening to correction. The city that's bent on love of self and the pursuit of self and the delight in self and the glory of self. That's the city all of us are naturally born into. And that's the most frightening thing right there. That's the, it's the city we're born into. It's the city we grow up in. It's the city all of us naturally make our home and call home because that's the city that exalts us and not God. That's the city that cherishes us and not God. That's the city that delights in us and not God. It's the city that celebrates us and not God. And yet if you're at all familiar with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, this earthly city, it's the city of destruction. For Isaiah is helping us see that is its end. Which, praise God, he doesn't leave us there. Right? There's a heavenly city, and that's the second city I want us to consider. That's what we turn to now, to, to the heavenly city. To the heavenly city. So look with me to chapter 26, verse 1. Chapter 26, verse 1. And as you go there, just look right up to chapter 25, verse 12, because 25, 12 closes with an image of the city of man in verse 12, right? And the high fortifications of his walls, man's walls, will be brought down, lay low, cast to the ground, to the dust, right? You're seeing that image again piling on. And yet we come to 26, 1, and we read, in that day, in a future day, this song will be sung, a song sung in the land of Judah, we have a strong city. He, that is the Lord, sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. So right there we're getting a vision this time of the Lord's city. 
Right? It's the city of God. It's a heavenly city. It's a strong city, we read. Right? It's got walls. It's got bulwarks that do not crumble. It's the city where God has worked out salvation for his people, where the gates are open to the righteous. There's the safety. There's a welcoming to that. And notice that in, verse 20, in chapter 26.1, notice what marks this city. This city's marked actually by singing. This city's marked by delight. So as back in 24.8, right, the earthly city, we read that the tambourine and the lyre, right, all those are stilled, right? The noise of jubilant song in the earthly city, that is still, that has ceased. And yet in the heavenly city, songs ring out, right? The amps are cranking, right? Volumes pumping. People are singing in the heavenly city. There is joy as voices and instruments cry out together in this city. And why is that? Look forward to 27.2. 27.2. We already looked at 27.1 with God punishing Leviathan. And then the image flips in 27.2. And the city is going to be likened to a vineyard. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment, I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Right, so here we have a picture of a very different city. And in this city, it's being depicted here as a vineyard. And if you remember all the way back to chapter 5, God's people were depicted as a vineyard. And yet it was as a vineyard that had not been faithful to the Lord. Though the Lord had dug wells and cisterns, if you remember, God's people had rebelled. And so the Lord let enemies run right over his vineyard. And yet here, there's going to come a day when God will restore his vineyard. And to behold it is to sing of it. Because the Lord, we read, is its keeper. Right, Every moment, there's not a moment that passes where the Lord isn't tending and keeping to his vineyard. Every moment he waters it. Right, His care is continual. His watchful eye constantly upon it. Night and day, we read, such that nothing can punish it. And notice, unlike chapter 5, In verse 4, the Lord has no wrath for this vineyard. It's not a place of punishment, not a place of fear. It's a place, rather, of safety and blessing and delight. So committed, in fact, is the Lord to his vineyard. His love is so intense for his vineyard that he almost wishes someone would come and attack it. So that's what it means by briars and thorns. Like enemies, he almost wishes that enemies would come and attack her, that he might have the satisfaction of rushing to her defense and defeating her foes. It's a powerful love. It's a jealous love. It's a committed and enduring love God has for his people in this vineyard, this heavenly city, such that in the city the people prosper. Right? They take root, we read. They fill, in fact, the whole world with fruit. So notice this picture of a vineyard. It's expanding. It's becoming a worldwide garden. It is, in fact, overflowing with fruit. The picture is 
is actually that of what Adam and Eve were called to do and failed to do. The very promise given to Abraham that through his offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed and prosperity would come. Well, that is what's gloriously depicted, beautifully fulfilled in this new city as the blessings go out to the earth. And what do they do in that city? Turn back to 25.6. What do they do in this heavenly city? I told you you'd need to keep those fingers ready. 25.6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. So what do they do in this heavenly city? They feast. Right? We read they celebrate. In contrast to the earthly city where there is no wine, 24, 9, and 11. The heavenly city, well, that seems to be full of the best cabs and Merlots and GSMs of the world. I don't know. Maybe an occasional white. I leave that with you. But when he talks about rich food full of marrow, so I don't know what that means. There are no vegetarians in heaven. I'll leave that with you to discuss at lunch, all right? But rich foods full of marrow call for great, wonderful reds. And think, you know, if the Lord is preparing this feast, if the Lord is the master vintner, where he's doing the growing and the cultivating and the harvesting and the fermenting, I'm going to imagine even the most committed teetotaler might raise a glass on that day. Because verse 7, he will swallow up the covering that is cast over all the people's That word for covering can also be translated burial shroud, like in the CSB. In other words, God is saying on that day, there's going to be no more need for burial robes. There's going to be no more need for shovels. No needs for caskets, for morticians, for granite headstones. There will be work in this heavenly city, yes. But praise God, there are some occupations in this city you will not find. The Lord has put some industries out of business eternally. They are closed for good. For verse 8, he swallowed up death forever, which means no hearses, no cemeteries, no urns with ashes, which means no aging, no wrinkles, no gray, no glasses, no crutches, No knee sleeves, which means no need for doctors, I guess. Sorry, Jim. For optometrists, sorry, Cliff. Chiropractors, sorry, Alex. You guys are going to all have to find new work, I trust, in the new heaven. Everything associated with death and with decay and with deterioration, that is gone, which means they're are no more hospice nurses. 
No more pharmaceutical companies. No more vaccinations and opioids. Even Kleenex. Look what it says. Right? Stores apparently won't stock them because the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Will our heavenly bodies have tear ducts? I don't know. But if they do, this is what you got to know. If we have Kleenex in heaven, if there are tear ducts, it is not for tears of sorrow, but it's tears of joy. Look to 2619. Turn to 2619. What does it mean that death is swallowed up forever? It means, 2619, that your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. What an amazing image. What a glorious image. The earth literally giving birth to the dead. Such that what? The earth gives birth to the dead and they live. They rise. Right there is one of the most explicit references to the resurrection in the Old Testament. And remember the contrast, the earthly city. What is true of the earthly city? It falls, we read, never to rise again. And yet, The heavenly city, with this city, all creation shouts and sings because the dead rise never to die again. So again, the earthly city falls never to rise. The heavenly city, the dead rise never to die again. Friends, we know this is not some pie-in-the-sky theology. Christ himself rose from the grave. He broke the chains of sin and death. That's why when we read this, we can know these aren't empty promises. God has already made good on these promises and promised to fully make good on these promises. And at his resurrection, we saw, or you can go to Matthew 27 and read of how the tombs break open as a sign that God is already about this work of bringing the dead back to life. Is that not what Paige read earlier in the service for us? What comes to a climax in that heavenly city, Revelation 21.4, when God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, for the former things have passed away. In this city there is resurrection, there is reverence, that is, there is worship. Is that not how even Revelation ends? Chapter 22, with all the nations gathered around the throne of God, Praising the Lamb in worship. Is that not, in fact, how our section ends? Chapter 27, verse 12. 27, verse 12. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, just that's basically the, the promised land, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. That trumpet we've been singing of earlier in the service. The trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria, and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. You see, Isaiah is already preparing us for that day when God is going to gather his scattered people. And they will gather and worship him. 
It's how our chapters end. It's how the book of Isaiah ends. You can go to Isaiah 66. Again, it's how Revelation and how the whole Bible ends in Revelation 22. And friends, that right there is where all joy begins. All lasting joy, all true joy begins on that day. Gathering in the feast of the house of Zion to sing and to worship. That is the destiny of the heavenly city which begs that third and last point. Friends, which city will be yours? I presented the two cities. Isaiah lays them out. Which city will be yours? The earthly city or the heavenly city? Because we're presented with these two realities, drastically different realities, drastically different destinies. One is marked by sorrow, by sadness, by gloom, by despair, by death. Right? We saw no more singing, no wine, no feasting, no life, no God in that city. And yet the end of the other is exactly the opposite. Celebration, song, wine, feasting, everlasting life with God. The contrast between the two could not be clearer. So friend, what city this morning, walking through these doors, what city have you chosen to call home? What city are you now residing in? And what city are you making your life? You know, if you're here this morning and you don't identify as a Christian... The great news is you can actually move. You can change your address. You can become a part of this heavenly city. And you can move out of the earthly city. Because did you notice for whom God provided that feast? Look back to 25.6. Look back to chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. So right there, the, Isaiah is saying, hey, this feast, at the end, of the, the end of time, this feast is, it's not just for one people. It's actually for all peoples, for all nations, as he's going to go on to say. In other words, God is inviting all to gather at this feast. It's actually what Jesus taught. If you know the parable of the wedding banquet, Matthew 22, we're all invited. And just to be clear, clothes don't finally matter. The color of your skin doesn't matter. Your bank account doesn't matter. Even all of the sin you bring with you, God can deal with that. That doesn't finally matter. Christianity is an inclusive message that welcomes all. And yet, there is exclusivity as well. For the feast... Where is that feast? One place. It's on the mountain of the Lord. You're not going to find that feast anywhere else. And you have to come to this God to be a part of that feast. There's not another way. Right? It's what Jesus himself would teach. Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, we can't buy our way into this heavenly city. We can't bribe our way into this heavenly city. There is no amount of work we can do to earn our way. So I read back in 26.2 of the righteous nation that may enter in. The righteous nation. But to be clear, that righteousness, that's not our righteousness. Our own righteousness doesn't earn our residency in that city. No, he, the Lord, sets up salvation, 26.1. And if you look forward to 26.12, 26.12, we read there. 
O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. For you have indeed done for us, i.e. on our behalf, Lord, you have done all our works. Or look to 26.18. Right? All our labor, he's going to say, all of our works give birth to nothing but wind. What a futile image, giving birth to wind. In other words, they've done nothing for us. 26.18, we have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. Isaiah is trying to make really clear, Israel, the nations, you can't save yourselves. Work as you might. You give birth to wind. It won't accomplish anything. God saves. God himself saves. It's his salvation. And friend, that begins, if you have come and you're not a believer in this God, it begins by confessing, starting right there, that you're a sinner before this God. That you have, to borrow the language of chapter 24, right? you've transgressed You have violated, you have broken statutes, laws, God's covenant with his people, which is why God, in fact, took it upon himself, since it's his salvation, to send his own son to bear the burden of our debt, the curse we read about, the guilt of our sin. That's what Christ himself bore on the tree. That's what he bears for all who would turn from their sin and trust in this gracious God. That's what Christ bears for them. And then this Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death so that all who trust him can have their guilt atoned for, can have their sins forgiven. They can be freed from that earthly city bound for death, destined for that heavenly city bound for life. God is saying all are welcome to that table to partake of that table in Christ and in him alone. His death for yours so that his life can be yours. Now, Christians in the room, to the Christians in the room, to to members of UBC, right? this vision of a heavenly city, this is the kind of vision we've got to keep before us. This is the vision we have to keep in our mind's eye. Isaiah gives it to us as an encouragement, an encouragement to persevere when it's hard, to not throw in the towel when it gets tough. Right? It's what Jesus does. How often does Jesus take, even in John 14, his disciples to the reality that he is already going ahead of them to prepare a place for them. The New Testament regularly points us to this heavenly city, and it closes with that vision and revelation of a heavenly city so that we would not lose heart. Because the pilgrimage, First Peter, right? The pilgrimage gets hard. It gets difficult. When the discouragements mount, when we are asked to bear the reproach of the world. So just look back there, 25. We hear and we read about the Lord wiping away tears from all faces, And then we immediately read, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. Because as God's people, we do bear the reproach of the world. We bear the ire and the scorn of this world. And when this world laughs at us and mocks us and derides us, right, for our silly beliefs, that's what we have to live through. And when we lose friendships because of it, when we lose jobs perhaps because of it, when God might ask us to lose more because of it, We need to know why we're waiting. What are we waiting for? What is our reward? What does God hold out to us? It's this city we have to keep in our minds. Because a day is going to come. Look at 25.9. 
A day is going to come where we will say, Behold, chapter 25, 9. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Or 26.8. Look there to 26.8. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance. What's on the mind of God's people? Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. My Christian friend, does any of that describe you? Does any of that describe you? This waiting, this seeking, this yearning for the Lord. And if not, friend, I wonder, what did you come in here waiting for this morning? What are you waiting for? Maybe an ACT test score? Maybe you're waiting for an acceptance letter. Maybe you're waiting for word of a scholarship. Maybe you're waiting for a date or a returned call or a wedding. Maybe you're waiting for a job interview. Maybe you're waiting for a promotion. Maybe you're waiting for a new home, that vacation you've always dreamed of, that car or that boat you've never had, but in your spare time you keep researching, hoping and waiting that one day it might be yours. Maybe you're waiting for a child or a grandchild. Maybe you're waiting for retirement so you can spend your leisure as you please. Just don't listen to John Piper. Dreaming trips, planning travel. Friend, I don't know what you're waiting for this morning. But if we are not careful, it is so eyes to take, so easy rather to take our eyes off that heavenly city and keep it fixed on this earthly one. We grow restless. We make our home here. We look for pleasure and satisfaction and rest here. And yet this earthly city never satisfies, but that never stops us from making our home in it. We wait for something, and then we get that something we wait for, and then it's not enough, and so we move on to the next thing. I know in my 20s, I bought a sports car. The only time I ever bought a sports car. You're not surprised, right? In my 20s. I got it. I had to wait months for it. It finally came. I picked it up. It was awesome. And then months later, I realized, oh, there's a new model. It has a bit more horsepower. It corners a bit better. The exhaust sounds better, and I'm already thinking of the next thing. So many things in life make promises to us, and we get them, and then we wonder, what were we waiting for? Why this? Why did we long for it? Which Isaiah is trying to lift our eyes up to that heavenly city. For this city, he's saying, it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. It is a city that won't disappoint. It's a city that doesn't grow old that never grows dull, that doesn't become tired, it doesn't become boring. It's a city of feasting, of constant singing, and rejoicing because the Lord himself is there. Now, if you're all like me, that's a hard thing to imagine. It's a hard thing to picture. Concrete things, I understand. A heavenly city with singing and the rest, yeah, I have a kind of a concept for it. It's tough. You know, there's a song my wife loves by a contemporary Christian artist by Jess Ray. And the title of the song is Too Good, and the refrain goes like this. She's actually playing it this morning. It may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. That's sort of the constant refrain. It may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. 
And then because she recognizes the final treasure of that heavenly city is God himself, toward the end of the song, the refrain, the refrain flips. And instead she sings, He may be too good to be understood, but he's not too good to be true. Friends, our waiting in this life as believers, our trusting, well, it may at times seem too good to be understood, but that doesn't mean it's not too good to be true. Some of the most heavenly-minded people, we are told, are of no earthly good. C.S. Lewis, I think, was exactly right. He said, actually, no, the people that are of most earthly good are those that are, in fact, most heavenly-minded, and that needs to be us. For if we truly knew, if we truly grasped the glory of this heavenly city Isaiah is painting for us, would we not labor today more diligently? Would we not share about this city and this day to come more freely? Would we not fight for faith? Would we not fight more strenuously? Would we not love one another more sacrificially? Would we not wait for the city more patiently? Right, that's right there's the challenge of the Christian life to do that as we wait. Which is why notice this waiting is what God's people do together. I don't know if you caught that. All the pronouns I read a minute ago, 25, 9, 26, 8. Not I, but we pronouns, right? We, we wait. We wait, Isaiah says. It's why we gather together as God's people like this. It's why we sing together as we have and we're about to do. It's why we hear God's word together. It's why we share meals together. It's why we gather on Sunday evenings and we pray together and we hear about gospel work overseas together so that others may enter into the joy of this city together and together we celebrate. That's what we do as we wait. That's how we wait and keep our eyes fixed on that heavenly city. Lest we drift back to that earthly city. So I ask one last time, what city are you living for? Earthly city or the heavenly one? You know, in Augustine's famous city of God, he describes the two cities this way. The two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter glories in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God. The one lifts up its own head and its own glory. The other says to God, Thou art my glory and the lifter of my head. So I ask again, of those two loves reflected in those two cities, which city will be yours? Where will you make your home? Let's pray. God, we pray and we are grateful for the clarity, even when it's hard, stark clarity, for the clarity with which you present us two cities with two destinies and the choice that lies before us. And God, we pray that as we wait for that city, that we would wait with the kind of expectation and hope that reflects the eternity we will have and the joy we will have with you 